Hey, Benjamin, Chris. Listen, sorry about the other day. Um, wanted to call and apologize. Sorry about that. I think I've been drinking too much lately. And anyway, I hope I didn't ruin your show. I realized that my story was a bit out there. Um, but anyway, between the beers and the stress and everything that's going on, I just literally, I don't know what's reality anymore. And so I'm sorry, but I'll, I will tell you this one thing that I do know is I don't want these goddamn tea baggers to take control of our country. I cannot go through it again. I, I don't know if it's possible for the country to go through it. Um, so anyway, um, I'm, I'm skipping town. I'm, I'm taking off sometime from work and I'm going to New Orleans to volunteer for a couple of the campaigns down there. I think I might even, uh, I might even make a difference. Who knows? I'm going to try. Uh, I know you were coming to town for that John Stewart and Stephen Colbert rally. And um, I can leave you my keys. If you need to stay there, you can still stay at my apartment. Uh, but uh, Chris, you probably got some girl you can stay with. So anyway, just let me know. Um, if you need the keys, if you need to use the place, it's totally yours. But um, I got to go do my thing. So uh, I'll talk to you soon. Take care, buddy. Bye. There was that headline in the Times today or yesterday, Tea Party poised to take significant number of seats, uh, meaning they'll have a voice in what passes for the national discourse. Um, and I didn't even read the article. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I can't go back to caring. I mean, I cared. I cared hard for like eight years, and it just about killed me. And I believe that people should care, but that can't be me. I cannot go back to caring, personally. If I try caring again, it will destroy me. My friend Tim Kreider started his weekly comic strip, The Pain, When Will It End, in the mid-1990s. The events of 9-11 turned him into a rabid political cartoonist, and for almost eight years he took on the Bush administration, the war on terror, and what he called America's total denial of reality. Fanagraphics Books has already published the strips from 2000 to 2004 in the book Why Do They Kill Me?, and they'll soon be publishing the strips from 2004 to 2008 in a volume Tim is calling Twilight of the Assholes. Everything's finished except I have to redraw the actual title. My longhand was deemed too illegible for a cover, and so I'm drawing it in these monumental block letters. And I've really put it off to the last minute because I feel like a myopic schmuck because it's already Dawn of the Assholes again. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like a, a schmuck sitting there lettering this title and already having to eat my words as I draw them. It's not Twilight of the Assholes. It's Dawn of the Assholes. It's Asshole Dawn. Now, when Barack Obama took office in 2009, you gave up cartooning for writing. Why did you quit? I, I, in the last few years of doing that, I really didn't want to be a political cartoonist anymore. I was completely burned out, but I felt like... It was incumbent on me, and I wasn't going to quit before George Bush quit. Um, and a lot of people looked forward to my work as a kind of uh, 
not an inspiration, but just a reminder that they weren't insane. They weren't the only ones. But, you know, I was sort of forcing it. And what it was doing to me as a person was not great. You know, as is true of most humorists, what the, the fodder for the work was anger, which meant I had to get angry about something every week, which wasn't hard to find. You know, every day the headlines offered up some new source of shame. But the outrage that I was required to experience to draw that cartoon every week, uh, you know, it was killing me. It was killing me. Um, the rage. I mean, it's not good for you. It's fun. But like a lot of things that are fun, it's not that good for you. You know, Dick Cheney and George Bush were almost fun to caricature. I mean, they were just like Dick Tracy villains. They were like cartoons of hapless evil. But the people I, I truly f***ing loathed in that time weren't even them so much as the Americans who supported them. There was this guy that I drew, and he was kind of like the archetypal red state American. He was, he was known only as the shithead voter. And the shithead voter had a little USA number one ball cap. He had mirrored shades on. He had like a cop mustache with the two side, what do you call them? How, how do you describe that mustache? It's like an inverted horseshoe shape. It goes down on either side of the mouth. Uh, he's got a double chin with stubble. Um, and he just doesn't know f all about the issues. He's just America, number one, keep the faggots down. Um, and as you know, that guy's in the ascendancy once again. That guy lurks deep in the genetic makeup of America. <laughs> you know, I think my hatred for those people goes back to, you know, goes back to when we were kids. I mean, I was recently at my 25th high school reunion and someone referred to me and my friend Brian, who's now an ophthalmologist at the National Institute of Health, as the brain trust. It's the first time I've been mocked for being intelligent well in about 25 years, ever since I went off to college and started associating with grown-ups. <laughs> and you know, it doesn't happen too much in New York City that people make fun of you for being smart. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the old grudge that's getting worked out still. Um, them against us for being smart and us against them for being stupid. You know, there's this kind of willful ignorance and incuriosity, this, and not, you know, not just willful, but proud, you know, this pridefulness in um, not knowing anything. I mean, seeing them back in the news, it's just killing me, man. All their right-wing red state caricatures of what we are like are completely accurate as far as I'm concerned. I mean, as they apply to me. I'm a big, fat, East Coast, ivory tower, egghead, liberal, elitist snob. I think those people are too motherfucking stupid to have the right to an opinion, let alone the vote. It's true. I think I'm better than them. They're idiots who believe Jesus is real and watch NASCAR. Everything they think about me is true. <laughs> I mean, it's fun to talk that way, and it's fun to write that way and do cartoons about it, but it's really not good for you. I mean, I can feel right now I've got a nice little adrenaline charge from talking that way. It feels like an opiate coming on. Um, and it kills you in the long term. It was killing me, you know, just, just indulging that rage week after week.
Um, I mean, it's sort of tempting, you know, that art is more fun to create, it's easier. What I'm doing now, the writing I'm doing now, is, is sort of hard, slogging labor. It's not easy or fun understanding things. It's easy and fun to judge things um, and to judge people for being stupid or mean. Um, and you know, it would be easy to get me started up again. It would be really easy and I can't, I can't go back now. It would be like going back to a drug habit. On February 19, 2009, CNBC business news commentator Rick Santelli is on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. When asked by the news anchor about the new government plan to refinance mortgages, Santelli shakes his head and accuses the Obama administration of promoting bad behavior. Money, he says, should only go to people who carry water, not those who just drink it. This is, of course, the beginning of what is now known as the rant heard round the world. It continues with Santelli audaciously declaring that this room full of traitors is America. Then he turns to this cross-section of ordinary people, his words, and asks them the big question. How many of you want to pay for your loser neighbor who got an extra bathroom and can't pay the bills now? The audience starts booing, and Santelli turns back to the camera. President Obama, are you listening? He says with his arms stretched out. He almost looks like he's on a crucifix or something. Now, Santelli has repeatedly denied that there's anything staged or phony about this performance. I say he's lying. As someone who stages fake things all the time, I know a plant when I see one. And that traitor on Santelli's right is definitely a plant. You can watch the video for yourself. This stooge traitor blows his line. And Santelli gets so pissed, he even turns away from the camera for a second. Santelli is able to pull it together, though. And he makes his grand announcement. He says in July, he's going to hold a Chicago Tea Party. And he invites all good capitalists to attend. And once again, on cue, our plant puts his hand in his mouth and belts out a loud whistle. Everyone cheers. Santelli's arms go back up in the air. Now, the story of this video is the story of the Tea Party. In less than 12 hours, the video goes viral thanks to the Drudge Report and Fox News multiple Facebook pages and websites pop up, but interestingly enough, ChicagoTeaParty.com is already registered by the lobbying firm of the Republican House Majority Leader Dick Armey. But let's just pause here. Let's rewind to that moment when the traitor blows his line. 
This is what I think he was supposed to say. How about we all stop paying our mortgage? But this is what he says. How about we all stop paying our mortgage? It's a moral hazard. Now, first of all, your average American can't tell the difference between a moral hazard and a chocolate-covered ding-dong. So having our trader blurt this out dilutes Santelli's argument that he's in a room filled with average Americans. Maybe this is why he got so mad and turned away from the camera. I don't know. But a moral hazard simply defined is a situation in which one person decides how much risk to take while making sure someone else is holding the bag if things go badly. When the banks failed in 2008 and the American people bailed them out, many economists argued that this was an example of moral hazard. They made the case that if we created institutions too big to fail, then these institutions will continue to take risks, knowing that the American taxpayer will always be there to bail them out. Of course, it is also a moral hazard to bail out Americans who can't pay their mortgages as well. But the scale and the price tag of the bank bailouts make such comparisons totally preposterous. And this is why I find this video so fascinating. Because here, on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, in a room full of people who work in an industry that was completely decimated by risky behavior, an industry bailed out by the American taxpayer, Rick Santelli is ranting about moral hazard. Imagine, just for a second, Rick Santelli turning to the traders and ranting about bank bailouts instead. Imagine him accusing the Obama administration of promoting bad behavior among bankers and traders. This is why I say Rick Santelli is full of shit. And why I say the Tea Party is also full of shit. Actually, I stole that line from the political journalist Matt Taibbi. In one of his recent Rolling Stone pieces, Tea and Crackers, he explains how he came to this realization about the Tea Party while attending a Sarah Palin rally in Kentucky. You know, I've been covering these these uh, events for over a year now, and it just kind of struck me at the at this Palin rally. I was I was sitting in the middle of this uh, convention hall in Louisville, uh, where it was it was a ten thousand elderly white people, and it seemed like every third person in the building was either on an oxygen tank or in one of those motorized wheelchair scooters. And one of the reporters next to me sort of leaned over and whispered, he's like, uh, you know, the reason they're all in these scooters is because they have these commercials down here that say, uh, buy a scooter, you don't even have to pay for it, Medicare will pay for it. Uh, and then it just struck me that all these people who were railing against the government, I mean, that was the biggest applause line in Palin's speech was when she, she quoted Ronald Reagan saying, government isn't the solution, it's the problem. Uh, every, you know, everybody cheered and these are exactly the same people who I interviewed, you know, on two different presidential campaigns who never once said a thing about uh, the record expansion of the federal government and uh, a record deficit creation under George Bush. So it, it just struck me that it's it's the movement is incredibly disingenuous, and it, you know, there's there's a there's a larger 
lie at the bottom of it. It's the disingenuousness of the movement that, to me, is its most striking quality. Yeah, but when you talk to them, do you get a sense that they're even aware of the hypocrisy? Are they aware that they're kind of lying? I mean, it seems that they have some sort of math, some sort of calculus that makes this all make sense. There are some people in the movement who... Uh, have their eyes a little bit more wide open about what's going on, who did sort of admit a few things to me, you know, in, in longer interviews. But the vast majority of the people that I talk to don't even see the contradictions. Uh, you know, a great, a great example is I talked to um, a guy in California, I'm uh, sorry, not in California, Nevada, and he was talking about how it's all people on welfare who are, you know, draining our resources, who are, uh, you know, are, who are the problem. And then it comes out in the interview that this guy has, you know, been on a government pension for the last 20 years, that he's, uh, you know, on food stamps, that he's used unemployment insurance. I mean, literally almost every single government aid program that you can think of, he's taken part of. And... And I said to him, "What's you know? How do you not see the contradiction there?" And he's like, "Well, you know, I des- I deserve it. Uh, you know, they have this idea in their head that the- there's this class of quote unquote other people out there who who are not working hard, who are lazy, and, if- and we know who they're talking about when they say these things. Uh, but it's those people who are the problem, whereas they are decent Americans who deserve their money." Yeah, but see, this is the thing that's that's difficult for rational people to understand, because if, on the one hand, we're going to follow this argument through that the other people, and, you know, many people besides yourself have talked about this, that it's really not, the problem is not government spending per se, but it's government spending on these other people, the handout people. But if this isn't racism, and you seem to say it's not, then what is it? It's a form of racism, sure. It's, it's, uh, it's... I think it's probably closer to xenophobia than racism, although I know, I know that's not much of a distinction, but they have, a lot of these people have an idea that there's a cultural difference between them and this other class of people who are looking for a handout in their mind. In other words, they're, uh, that it's culturally acceptable among the Latino immigrant community, community according to them, to come in and just sort of live off welfare and food stamps. Whereas if they use it, uh, you know, you know, a great example is this candidate from Alaska, Joe Miller, who, who, you know, just got outed for being on a government, uh, you know, Medicare program for his children back in the '90s, and he was, and he was waving the flag against government health insurance. And when they asked him about that, what, you know, don't you see the contradiction? He said, well, sometimes it's appropriate to help people get from this transitional stage where they're dependent to a place where they can be economically independent. Uh, so in his mind, when he uses a government program, he's just transitioning from a place where he temporarily needed money to a place where, you know, he could be independent, whereas those other people are not looking to transition to economic independence. They just want to be on welfare because they're lazy. I mean, I, I, I think that's the mentality if, if, you, if you get right down to it. They won't come out and say it, but that's, that's what it is. Yeah, but it does seem that, you know, in the interest of rational debate or even rational understanding, that the, this way of dealing with contradictions kind of can make your head explode. It, it's, it, it makes it almost impossible. Like, for example, you write about this woman, Blanche Phillips, who you meet, who you, you were kind of talking to her about uh, Rand Paul. Right, right, yeah, and this woman kind of looks at me. You know, I, I pointed out that Rand Paul started out as this outsider candidate, and then he you know, suddenly he's in bed with Mitch McConnell and all these, these other Republicans, and 
uh, she says, well, maybe he got saved, you know? I mean, in other words, they don't really care. It, uh, if you point out to them that this movement that, uh, ostensibly is, was supposed to be a rebellion against the Republican party has, has turned into, you know, a vehicle for the Republican party, 70 to 75% of the people in the tea party are former Bush supporters. They're the same people who voted for Sarah Palin, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and for them, it's not. This is not about rebelling against the Republican Party. This is just. This is what's consistent about them uh, is that they are still targeting the same people. Their enemies are still the same: liberals, you know, immigrants, you know, Muslims, any you know people who people of color who are on welfare. Those are the the focus. That's the focus of their anger. It was three years ago. It still is. In 2002, the Canadian photographer Naomi Harris was living in Miami. And since she's a nudist, she was spending a lot of time on the nude beach. One day, this older guy she sort of knew, Ron, asked her for a favor. Ron wanted to go to a swingers club called Trapeze. But being a single dude, he couldn't get in. So he asked Naomi to come with him. He wasn't asking her to do anything, he just needed her to get in the door. And Naomi, being a curious type, said yes. We went to this club, it's in like an abandoned strip mall, everything else is shut down except for this one club, and in neon red you just see the word trapeze. And um, there's, uh, so we got there early so Ron could give me the lay of the land and show me all the rooms, and he showed me the back room, which is the orgy room, which was basically eight mismatched mattresses pushed together and he's always in this this is gonna be awesome and I'm just like okay they need a little decoration here um and the people started coming in and they're all looked like the same people I had been in line behind at the supermarket or the bank earlier that day just regular ordinary people like your dentist your accountant your school nurse whatever and the difference is they're all wearing like hoochie mama wear and, and stripper shoes and men in shiny shirts and um, they proceed to go to a buffet where there's a, a big chef with a hat and the white crispy, you know, chef's clothes. And he's carving up roast beef and serving scalloped potatoes. And everyone's just, myself included, eating. And then 20 minutes later, everyone's going to the back room. And um, I proceeded to watch all sorts of different sexual acts unfold in front of me and I'd never seen anything like that before and I was just fascinated partially because I mean I had a bit of indigestion at the time and I just don't understand how anyone could eat you know steak and then have group sex but okay that was one of the things that I thought was so funny and I thought about it and I'm like no one's gonna believe me when I tell them that at three in the morning when I was leaving the club there was the breakfast buffet out and the naked woman except for her high heels getting like I forget Danish or whatever, you know? And um, so I decided there and then that I really wanted to photograph it. Naomi Harris spent the next six years photographing swingers in clubs, festivals, and their homes. Her book, America Swings, has just been published by Toshin. And when I first saw the book, I knew I had to have her on the show for this series. 
As you might have noticed by now, each episode of Beyond the Fruited Plain features a photographer and a unique vision of America. Naomi Harris shows us a USA you have definitely never seen before. So the first party I decided to photograph was an event called Swing Stock, which is basically a four-day camping and fornication festival. So I contacted them and they said, yeah, sure, come along. So I packed up my tent and my cameras and flew out to Minnesota, got a car and drove to this campsite about an hour and a half away and um, went to my very first swing party picture I'm showing you now is a scene I stumbled upon in the woods where it was this woman Marty who I found out afterwards she had done something like I don't know she had taken mushrooms all weekend and had something like 50 orgasms over the course of the weekend you know here she is in this sex swing that's been propped in the trees and um, this woman is uh, helping her husband bring him her to orgasm manually, um, so to speak, and there's a crowd that has come to watch, and, you know, there's the one woman smoking a cigar and drinking a beer, and then another woman just sort of walked over. She's topless, and she's brushing her teeth. It seems to me that right off the bat, you're kind of capturing laid-back moments, attitudes, it's not just casual sex, it's it's casual attitude. These people are into reclining, putting pillows back under them. They're on holiday. I mean, this is, people have to remember, like, okay, some swingers take it really serious. It's a serious business for them. Like, we're going to come, we're going to get laid, we're going to go home, you know. We don't even care about getting names. For other people, it's very um, much about the social aspect. It's very recreational. It's very much about friendship. Um, a lot of the swingers I've met, they've stopped being friends with vanilla, regular, everyday people, their friends or other swingers, I guess they feel they have a, a connection and they understand each other more. So let's talk about uh, the things that come to mind when I'm watching the woman brushing her teeth and the fat woman uh, and the guy with the beard. They don't just look like the guys and girls at the bank or the dentist office. Right now we've got all these rallies going on across America, the Tea Party rallies, and it's mostly older white people. <laughs> And it kind of reminds me of them. And, and I'm kind of wondering, uh, did, you know, with this liberal attitude towards sex, what about the rest? Of, how do they see the rest of the world? Were they liberally well-rounded in life? The statistic for a swinger in America generally is uh, someone who's between the ages of 35 and 55. Middle class, middle America, white, um, liberal in their sexual attitudes but not in their political views and this is one thing I found very interesting um, I started this project in 2003 photographed at Epitel uh, at the beginning of 2008 so during 2004 the presidential election between uh, Bush and Kerry um, I'd be at parties where fights would actually literally break out um, there'd be the few people who are very liberal and saying, how could you vote for him? And then there'd be the other people who are like, and it would get to the point where the host would have to step in and say, you got to stop talking politics, leave it alone, leave it out the door. We're here to f But I, I would say most swingers tend to be um, Republican, actually.
I think another thing to look at in the book is how many pictures illustrate how America and American this activity is. Sure, this goes on in Europe, but for me, what was really fascinating, like going to a Thanksgiving dinner complete with turkey and pecan pie, and then people having sex. Um, as a Canadian, these are the things that stick out in my mind as what is America? Fourth of July parties, you know. What's more American than football, beer, and blowjobs? The picture I'm showing you now are these series of pictures that take place in Des Moines, Iowa. This is in the living room of uh, Paul and Robin. It's a very nice upper middle class home. Um, a sofa with three men sitting on it and three women sitting with their tops off, kneeling down at their feet and um, servicing them, so to speak, while all the men in the picture, there's a few other men on the sidelines, are watching the football game. And their poor dog, Buddy, is uh, just lying there with his bone next to them, kind of like, what the hell am I doing here? See, this is the thing. This, this dog looks like he knows that something is not right. Maybe, or maybe he's just kind of like, how did I get messed up into this? I also particularly like the fact that there's a crock pot in the background where they have like, you know, the little mini cocktail weenies and stuff. It, it's all, it's, and that was one thing that I, I always found amusing at the swinger parties. There was always food, always food at every party and never sexy food, never like sushi or light stuff, like a crudite platter. It was always like chips and dip and pizza and heavy heavy foods a lot of meats and depending also geographically where you were like when I was in the south they had a, you know the way the the one party had the buffet at three in the morning they pulled out their biscuits and gravy I, just, I mean to me that's just hilarious to be having biscuits and gravy after a night of sex you make America look really ugly obese flabby I didn't do anything. This is what America looks like. And um, I can't help the fact that as a country, exercise and good nutrition and, and taking better care of yourself is not the top priority. But this is just a, a cross-section of what America is with their clothes off and having sex with each other. These people, they're 200 pounds overweight, 300 pounds overweight. and. In their minds, they are the bomb. They are the sexiest person there. And um, you can see it. There's a picture I took with one of the very last parties in Texas where this woman has about seven rolls on her stomach. But the look she, she's on her back and I'm above her. And the look she's giving me is, I am the sexiest mother in this room. Don't you forget it. And in her mind, she is. And that's what I love about swingers. Their confidence, their absolute lack of... I don't want to use the word shame because there's nothing to be shameful of, but these people are there because they're confident in who they are and what they are, and they are just going for it. It seems that by the sheer fact that people were so comfortable with you photographing them that they have a very liberal attitude towards being in the open. In other words, not being something hidden. I think of one of the reasons a lot of people allowed me to photograph them is they felt that they were, it was their duty, that they were the ambassadors of swinging, of the lifestyle, if you will. And if they didn't allow me to photograph, how would they get their gospel out? They needed to be out there so they could get other people into the swing world. 
They want people to know about it. I think the message is that I am you, and you could be me. Um, that there is no type as to what a swinger is. It's not the porn star. It's not, you know, this impossible image of sexuality. It's the soccer mom. It's the regular guy who goes to the factory every day. It's the police officer. It's everybody. A swinger can be anybody and it can be you. And I think that's why so many people did allow me to photograph them because they wanted to show that, you know, I may look plain to you on the outside, but this is my life. You go home every day to your wife. I go to a party on the weekend and I have five guys' wives. Party was really in ruins. It was in disarray after Obama's election. There was an incredible schism within the party uh, that was represented uh, very, very eloquently by the divisions within the actual ticket, the McCain-Palin ticket. There was one side of the party that kind of wanted to hang in and and be, you know, an inside Washington, inside baseball kind of player, and then there was Sarah Palin, who was really just sort of playing to the crowd and, and playing to these very emotional themes. Uh, that would later become the Tea Party, these sort of anti-everything, anti-immigrant, anti-America's uh, you know, enemies theme. Uh, and after, after the election, there was this moment when Rick Santelli went on television and started wailing about this uh, Obama program to help people avoid foreclosure, and it exploded with this, these Tea Parties all over the country. And I think a lot of Republican Party insiders saw this and said, we just got to get a piece of this. We got to we got to start appropriating this energy, and they did that. They organized in the Freedom Works and and the Koch brothers and all those guys started to sort of get their hooks into the Tea Party, and from there they started to push it in the direction of a movement that would just serve the electoral purpose of of putting Republicans in office. And it's an amazing comeback. The the resiliency of this party. They were in total shambles. Uh, and they just go out there and with a bunch of f- 
freaks and fringe candidates and weirdos, they, they suddenly are going to sweep back into the majority again. It's, it's really an amazing thing. It is. I actually call it the greatest AstroTurf story ever told. And I guess that's my last question. In the end, is this all we need to do to understand the Tea Party? Follow the money? Sure, sure, yeah. And, and this doesn't happen uh, without that money on the one hand, but I think more, more to the point, I think it's, it's, uh, it's Fox News and, and, and Afternoon Drive Talk Radio is, is the key galvanizing force here. Obviously, those, the, the, the Koch Brothers money, the, the, the ads, the, the, the single-issue ads that are now going to be in, out there in force and actually already out there, all that stuff plays a huge part um, in organizing, you know, this movement, but the, the galvanizing thing is that they're all tuning into Fox news every single day and, and they're watching Glenn Beck and they're, and they're listening to Sean Hannity and, and Rush Limbaugh. And that's, that's where they're getting their marching orders from. And without that, would we, would we be seeing this movement? No way. You know, that's, that's not, that's not who these people are. They're not Che Guevara, you know, organizing local cells and, and you know, national action committees. These are, these are media consumers uh, primarily. That's what they are. They, uh, they read the Internet, they, they watch television, uh, and they listen to the radio, and that, that's their primary identity. They're going to follow the script that will be laid out for them, which is they're going to elect a whole bunch of Republican candidates uh, to the Congress, and those candidates are just going to magically kind of forget most of their Tea Party uh, platform and just push for the same things that Republicans always push for, more deregulation and lower taxes. Now, I have no doubt that there are a lot of people in this country who are reacting to having a black president and reacting by organizing. But the Tea Party itself, the sort of seeds of it, come from economics, not from race. I think no recession, no Tea Party. Zephyr Teachout is one of the Internet's original organizers. In 2003, she ran Howard Dean's insurgent online campaign. And for years, she's worked on projects that marry activism and the Internet. But in the fall of 2008, when the financial crisis struck, she says she found a new focus. I go away for a weekend and Lehman Brothers collapses. And ever since then, I have a hard time thinking about anything but banking and political power. <laughs> and I'm not alone. There was a huge national reaction to the bank collapse. The majority of Americans did not want a $700 billion bailout. And everywhere you go, you talk to people who talk not just about how they were angry about the bailouts, but about how this is a time we got to start from scratch. Left, right, center, apathetic, said, something's weird with the economy. We have to start from scratch. At first, Zephyr Teachout is hopeful. She thinks that Obama might seize the opportunity to remake the economy. But instead, his economic team of Summers and Geithner doubled down on the Bush policies. The policy is that this is a confidence game. And they talk about it as a confidence game. As long as people have confidence in the economy, everything's going to be okay. So there's a word for a confidence game. It's called a con game. And it's a very dangerous way to run an economy. It's a Ponzi scheme economy. Um, so I've been following this. I've been starting to think about antitrust law. What are ways that we can get engaged to you know, break up these uh, incredibly politically powerful um, financial institutions? And then in 2009, before there really even is a tea party, a friend emails Zephyr a link. 
I click on the link, it's called A New Way Forward. It says we should do three things. Nationalize the banks, reorganize the banks, and decentralize the banks. So, nationalize them, then reorganize, which is get rid of the bad leadership, and then break them up and uh, send them back to much more, uh, much more dispersed uh, banking around the country. The woman who wrote me said that she wanted to talk to me um, about translating the online organizing into offline organizing. So we had several long phone conversations and decided to hold events on April 11th, 2009. There were about 90 events uh, scheduled for around the country. Um, the event I went to had about 120 people in North Carolina. Uh, there was a pretty big event in San Diego, a great event in San Francisco, and then a few events that had ended up with one or four people. So the hope is we would have chapters in every state. We would be uh, breathing down the necks of Congress members who hadn't thought about economic policy before, but would suddenly have to adopt a break up the banks policy. Uh, we would be making somebody like Tim Geithner toxic to the administration. Um, that there was this you know, real sense that the old institutions, all these in institutions are changing. You know, war is changing. War isn't war anymore. Banks aren't banks anymore. Schools aren't schools anymore. Newspapers aren't newspapers anymore. And in this incredible interregnum, <laughs> there's a possibility of people, you know, take, taking some real power. Now, I can't say I thought it was for sure going to happen. But it just seemed like there was a chance. Now, the Tea Party had already started. There had been a few articles about it. Um, but at least initially, at least some of the people who came out to early Tea Party events were reacting against, you know, bank oligarchy and feeling like they're working hard and the banks are getting bailed out. The initial groundswell of response seems to actually be about real anger about TARP, about the bailouts, about banking power. Um, that is a left and right anger. This is not, um, it is highly political. I don't want to be all cute and nonpartisan, but it's highly political, but it is not just left or just right. So I see the Tea Party as um, evidence of one of the things that I've been hoping for for a long time, which is real massive political structural change. We never made our way into the news ecology. Now, some of that's our fault. We weren't as good with the media. But some of that is that the Tea Party had sponsors in the media. We got covered initially by Bill Moyers in a two-minute segment. So that's nice. But getting covered by Bill Moyers in a two-minute segment is very different than being on television, uh, MSNBC and Fox, CNN, and in um, not just New York Times, Washington Post, but hyper-local papers. So you cannot underestimate the power of the media in creating the possibility for organizing. If you've never heard of A New Way Forward, how would you ever join it? And then we don't have any money, which makes a big difference. I was a law professor. Tiffany does web consulting. Donnie works for another nonprofit. Um, there are about 30 different people who became very active nationally. Every single one of them has a day job. So it's a very different thing to then say, okay, let's organize a second round of events. 
We organized a second round of events. We had 35 instead of 90. You can actually see how money does make a difference. Not maybe millions, although millions would have made a big difference. But here's the counterfactual. The question is, what if we'd had the kind of money that the Koch brothers are investing in Americans for Prosperity in the Tea Party? What if MSNBC talked about us an hour a day? And when I say us, I would mean like the Tea Party, a new way forward, Progressive Change Caucus Commission, the Coffee Party, all these various groups that were bubbling up during the same time. What if we collectively had millions of dollars in backing and daily popular television coverage? We would be more powerful than the Tea Party right now. People would be scared of us. I've been to a handful of Tea Party events and they're fascinating. <laughs> and I can see the money. I can see what it costs to put together an event at a baseball stadium. I'm so envious. Like, what if we had money for a baseball stadium and to reach every reporter in the country on a, on a dime's notice? It's, I mean, it's frustrating the way that pundits talk about it as if it exists in this really concrete form as if everybody's meeting every night. And, you know, I'm an organizer, and so I check in on things like, how many events are they actually having? How many local groups are there really? I, I went to an event in Arizona that was advertised every night for three weeks. There were about 400 people at that event. If I had that kind of advertising power, we'd have a lot more than 400 people. So it's frustrating that the press has sort of accepted the Tea Party and is going to talk about the Tea Party as this thing when it's a press-created thing. Everything about the Tea Party is frustrating. Because <laughs> the economy falls apart and the biggest grassroots movement is one that has nothing to do with the people who broke the economy. That's crazy. It was possible in 2009, 2010, to break up the bank so all of them were less than $50 billion. It was possible to put on usury laws so they couldn't loan at these incredibly high rates. They're killing people in this country. We, we could have stopped these crazy foreclosures. I mean, all of those were politically possible things. But the moment for a real economic populist, progressive, but really populist uprising might have passed.
And now I thought we might have a moment, however brief, for some sincerity. Uh, if that's okay, I know there are boundaries for a comedian, pundit, talker guy, and I'm sure I'll find out tomorrow how I have violated them. Hello? Hey, buddy. I'm How's really happy you guys are here. Chris? One second. Yeah. Hold, hold on. Uh, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let me move. I can, I can barely hear you. One second. Is it over yet? Almost. Almost. John Stewart's doing like his, his wrap-up thing now. So, hold on. Let me, let me just move here. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Do you want to stay for that? I can call you back. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to miss anything. I mean, what is he going to do? Tell people to vote? Okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I can hear you now. I'm, I'm by the porta potties. Oh, okay, that's that's cool. Did you, did you see any good signs? You know, uh, that, that's the thing. I, I kind of feel that you can get a sense of the defeatism from the signs. A lot of like, you know, stop shouting, uh, don't steep on me, why can't we be reasonable? There were like three hot girls with I love teabagging signs. <laughs> But I think the worst one, like obstructing like the whole corner, the whole corner I'm in's view, uh, in front of the jumbotron is a giant sign that says "Chill, baby, chill." Oh man, I'm I'm so glad I'm not there, dude. I'm so glad that I decided to come down to New Orleans and do something. We're going out every day. We're knocking on doors. We're making phone calls. We're sifting through voter registrations. We're you know just doing stuff and also it feels nice to be around other people who want to do stuff too there's one guy i'm working with as an older black guy he's about 75 and i spend a lot of time with him we're going around door to door in like the ninth war he's just been a total uh, very inspiring for me to work with him you know in the 60s he actually fought the kkk you know he he didn't he didn't try to negotiate with them. He didn't try to be reasonable. He certainly didn't hope that they would just chill. He had to beat the f***ers back with everything he had. And it's the same today. I mean, we have to fight back with everything we have. So I guess I need a sign like, kill, baby, kill? <laughs> nah. Unfortunately, they already got that one. What you really need is one that actually gets the chill to do something. Thaw, baby, thaw? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good start. But, you know, I've been walking around a lot, going door to door, and I've actually seen a lot of those spray-painted messages, like the ones that photographer that you interviewed was talking about. And I think I saw one that was kind of perfect. Need help now. Tomorrow will be too late.
This episode of Too Much Information is called Beyond the Fruited Plain, Part 3. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen, and featured Tim Kreider, Matt Taibbi, Naomi Harris, Zephyr Teachout, and our TMI Washington, D.C. correspondent, Chris. On the TMI playlist page, you can find links and images and archived broadcasts, and you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. All that at WFMU.org.